0: Episode 3 Organized Superstition All are taught that there was a great Jewish nation, with great kings, lawmakers, rulers, with great exploits and fantastical stories from conquering great armies to decimating small villages, or on the opposite end, being conquered and becoming slaves, and everything in between. That they were a great tribe contemporary with the ancient Egyptians, and so great to even rival the rule of the Egyptian kings. As said, in sections such as Exodus 1, this part based on the implanted idea that their lineage is kin to that of the Hyksos, and also that they had great numbers and could muster fighting age men in the hundreds of thousands. All of these notions accepted as history by the multitude. But where is that history? What books? Writings? Where is the traceability of such grandiose claims? Where is the proof? Is there any truth to this supposed history? No, none at all, and not even in the slightest, but you should listen to me tear down this false history anyway. The importance of understanding what I will be going through in the following sections is of great importance, and uproots the entirety of Jewish claims to a lineage, land, and a Jewish nation itself. This. What I will be laying out has immense ramifications concerning the drawing of maps today and claims of territory. What I'm about to go through was known hundreds of years ago, after the printing press, and known thousands of years ago, throughout time, by our ancestors. It is important to keep in mind that the printing press wasn't adopted in large scale until the mid-1700s, and to get a printed work out took a very long time, and as I stated in Episode 2, at the time the majority of the population were illiterate with that trend lasting into the early 1900s. It adds clarity to thought when you realize the limitations of people, limited manufacturing capabilities, access to works or libraries, no planes, trains, automobiles, or internet, and all of those things in their assigned periods of time. The works we have access to today were never available to the public at large until very recently. And even when they were printed, they were never meant for public consumption, as only the small, learned groups in academia and government were the audience they were written for, well before World War I, and especially before World War II. By and large, these works from the 1700s through the 1800s were never known outside of those very small groups until recently, with books being scanned into digital format and put on the internet, not but around 11 years ago. I feel I need to drive this point home. The ramp-up of digitizing books and archiving them on the internet did not get going at large scale until around 2010. And that is truly the point when the general public had access to the information I have been putting out in this series, as before that time, it was consolidated into very small groups of academia and government, and not shareable across people and distances as we can do today. All of this information centralized and controlled and kept away from the lower classes, kept out of any teaching institutions, and more recently, governments making it illegal to even talk about. Some bills and laws being written today concerning Shemitic people and other things might make more sense now that you understand the dynamics of information today. Plainly, governments know the sins of the past are upon them, and it is a scramble to reign in the people before they become self-aware. Let's get into the body of this episode with the Fable of Moses. Though the Fable of Moses is known among academics to be a forgery of Dionysus, who is Bacchus, same as Iacchus, and the epithet Mises, along with Osiris, and other characters developed from more ancient civilizations, I feel that many who come across this series might not be aware of this fact. There are still some scholars today who insist on debating this fact, and they are near exclusively Jewish academics. Nevertheless, this fable was put to bed centuries ago by esteemed academics from many nations, and those who debate it today do it in bad faith. There will be no debate with me. For the simple fact is all of the Bacchus Fables have positive traceability to their source cultures. The Fable of Moses has not one piece of evidence to the Jewish culture, but in its entirety being a forgery of various Bacchus Fables. This alone makes it clear, regardless as it being accepted as fable in the first place, that the Jewish culture has no claim of origin, just as with everything else I have presented in this series. With that, I will show some correlations. Bacchus was born in Egypt. Same with Moses. Bacchus was saved from the waters while floating in a box. Same with Moses. Bacchus was bimater, meaning having two mothers. Same with Moses. Bacchus was raised in Arabia, near a place called Mount Nisa. Nisa essentially being an anagram for Sinai, or Sinai, being Moses' Mount Sinai. Bacchus has a rod to perform miracles with, and that rod can change into a snake. Same with Moses and his rod with brazen serpents. Bacchus crossed the Red Sea dry shod. Moses parted the Red Sea. Bacchus divided the waters of the rivers Orontes and Hydaspus, then passing them dry shod. Again, Moses parted the Red Sea. Bacchus drew water, or wine, from a rock with his rod. Moses drew water from a rock with his staff. Bacchus was called a lawgiver. Same with Moses. Bacchus wrote his laws on two tablets of stone. Moses' laws were on two tablets of stone. Bacchus married Venus, one of the seven planets. Moses married Zipporah, one of the seven sisters. Bacchus smote Pentheus, the serpent. Moses battled the pharaoh, called the dragon. Bacchus was accompanied by a dog. Moses had a dog named Caleb. I could go on with 20 more of these, but the point has been made. These are not just coincidental similarities, but direct plagiarizing by the Hebrew for their character of Moses, then assigned a false origin. At this time, I don't feel it wanting to do anything more with this character Moses, as it should be clear from the first episode to this point that there was no real man named Moses who parted the Red Sea or bopped a rock with his staff to create a fountain of water. There was no such man who talked through a burning bush with God or received two tablets of stone carved by God's finger for the laws of man. Where is the evidence for a great nation of Israel? The most recorded ancient civilization known of today that we can look to is that of the Egyptians. With their monuments, sculptures, hieroglyphs, and writings that seem to have no end, There is no indication of a great Hebrew nation residing among them as slaves. That might come as a shock to most, considering most were brought up through institutions that teach this error from their history books even till this day, but the following sections will be dedicated to dispelling many of these myths pertaining to the fiction of a great Jewish people in Egypt. This brings us to the people called Hyksos, who were never Hebrews and it is clearly evident that the history of these people, the Hebrew in later times, saw fit to pretend themselves as being kin to when fabricating their supposed history and lineage. As Dr. Inman puts it, it would be the same to call the Moors who conquered Spain Carthaginians, because both came from Africa. This people called the Hyksos were said to have subdued Egypt, this time said to be around 2404 B.C., then beginning their retreat around 1934 BC. And here we run into some issues if there is a claim of Jewish lineage coming from the Hyksos, as the academics' fabled chronology has the Israelites entering Egypt around 1705 BC, or 2179 BC, or 1535 BC. It seems no one can get their story straight on that. And having the Exodus around 1300 BC, this making them not the Hyksos, whatever way you slice it. I will note here that more modern scholars, near exclusively Jewish from our era, year 2000 and up, attempt to put these dates in the ranges of early 1600 BC to early 1500 BC for the Hyksos in Egypt, and it is of no doubt this is an attempt to try to put Hebrews in Egypt before the Hyksos so as to match the dates from their Bible myths. If this were the case, we wouldn't find Hyksos inscriptions on tombs dating around 1900 BC. And furthermore, we don't even find the Shemetic language of the Hebrews anywhere in Egypt, regardless of their testimony of a great ruler named Joseph, son of Jacob. This character styled to that of a king in Egypt, or that of a prime minister, who rose up and saved the Egyptians during mass famine That led them into poverty and slavery. This Joseph then providing a superabundance of food and supply to save the people of Egypt. Not once mentioned in any archives, monuments, sculptures, or hieroglyphs in Egypt. It becomes beyond silly when these Jewish so called scholars attempt to attribute Egyptian hieroglyphs as being Hebrew, such as Professor Richard Steiner, University of New York, saying the inscription which uses Egyptian characters to represent early Canaanite or Proto-Hebraic speech, etc., etc., when talking about a pyramid in Cairo. This is laughably ridiculous and outright fraud to say Egyptian characters coming from the Egyptians, well, these are really Hebrew. No, they're not. All throughout my studies on this topic of organized superstitions, I've been met with the Jewish scholar attempting to rewrite history, not just here and there, but almost without exception these academics cover up truth and perform flat-out lies when put in positions of authority on the subject. Whether it be changing the meaning of just a word or falsifying words throughout an entire lexicon, to writing papers and books with entirely false timelines of nations and cultures, so as to conform to the false history testified in their Bible myths. These are fictitious books of fable, not historic fact, and their information has no place in a scientific method when drawing out history. Okay, so back on track. It is intriguing to know, through the assigned writings of Manetho, from which we don't have any preserved originals, an assumed priest in Egypt, 3rd century B.C., that the Hyksos were said to have retreated to a place called Avaris. And in another page, the same author says a king named Amenophis, whose time is said to be variously between 1391 and 1334 BC, sent the lepers of the country to the quarries. These lepers then obtained permission to live in Avaris, the previous habitation of the Hyksos. And the story follows that Osarsip, the name being from Osiris, consolidated the ranks of the lepers, and sent a group of their leaders to a city called Jerusalem. Some big problems arise here, as one, this shows the lepers to be native to Egypt, as there is no mention as them being foreign. And two, there was no Jewish city named Jerusalem until David, per the chronology of the Jewish Bible, who converted the name Jebus into Jerusalem, again, per the Jewish fables pretty major fact here, don't you think? It becomes beyond doubt that the Jewish fables are whole cloth forgeries of other people's traditions and stories, including the name they call their holy city today. I realize at this point, from episode one, I was going to give a breakdown of that word, Jerusalem, in episode two. This is why I have waited, so that some history could be brought forward first. In the next episode, that word will be broken down. Also, this amanophis has been used by academics to claim a time of a Jewish exodus, which, plainly, is untenable. In furthering this one more step, we find no remnants from this highly archived civilization of Egypt to even show such a ruler as Joseph, or a nation of slaves called Hebrews, or of a king known as Pharaoh, Pharaoh being a Greek rendering or of plagues, as depicted in the Bible Testimonies, or the destruction of an army in the Red Sea. Note here that I tend towards agreeing with Dr. Inman that the word Pharaoh should not be considered as deriving from ancient Egyptian, and today it can still be rightfully contended by academics that it was not. Either way, it is not pertinent to the subject, and if removed from the list does not change a thing. See a breakdown of the word Pharaoh in Dr. Inman's Volumes 1 and 2. And let me put a cherry on top of this train of thought. We also do not find a great universal deluge in Egyptian history either. And as a matter of fact, the Great Pyramid of Giza was being built at the same time the Abrahamic fables say there was a deluge of the earth. How mighty the Egyptians must have been, how industrious in defying such a cataclysm, To be able to build a massive pyramid in the time when the Jewish testimony says the entire earth was covered in water. So, within a short time, two myths used to claim the presence of Jews in Egypt were dispelled that of them being lepers, and that of them being kin to Hyksos. Keep this point in mind there are no writings, tablets, sculptures, or a recorded history of a Jewish people in Egypt outside their own fable from the Old Testament, which by now one should realize is wholly a fabrication, a fictional script of tradition plagiarized from more ancient established cultures, not history, which will come up again and again throughout this series. Homer, said to have lived between 962 B.C. and 684 B.C., generally split and said to be around 750 B.C., makes no mention of Jews anywhere in his writings, but does talk about Sidon and the Phoenicians. Furthermore, Homer makes no mention of a prophet named Solomon, a supposed fabulously wealthy and wise king of the United Kingdom of Israel, who succeeded his father, King David. Solomon, the supposed builder of the first temple in Jerusalem. The king said in the Second Chronicles 9.23 that, all kings on earth sought his presence, who supposed reign being maybe 40 years before Homer's era, or that being the time of the Trojan War. We also have the traveler, geographer, and historian Herodotus, about 480 BC, never mentioning a nation of the Jews, even though his vast writings of Egypt have been used by academics for centuries. Furthermore, Herodotus, mentions nothing of the early kings of Egypt holding a nation captive. He does, however, mention Tyrian Phoenicians living around the Temple of Vulcan at Memphis. Herodotus traveled through Tyre, then along the Euphrates and into Babylon, but makes no mention of a Jewish people being held captive, which is remarkable in the fact that they must have been so inconsequential and unremarkable in those areas as to never even warrant a sentence from this historian. Herodotus talks about the army of Sesostris, an ancient king of Egypt put between the dates of 1308 BC and 1489 BC. Some refer to him as a pharaoh, who must have marched through Syria north, giving an account that the Colchians, Egyptians, and Ethiopians are the only nations that practice circumcision. Most definitely, if there was a Jewish nation, This historian would have brought them up with this topic, as we know this practice of circumcision among Jews is of the utmost sacrosanct. So where did the Jew get this practice? I have little doubt they got the idea from the Phoenicians or somewhere down that chain of influence, who got the practice from their trade and partnerships with the Egyptians who practiced this at one time. All of this together, in total, starts to unravel the historic idea of a great nation of Jews in Egypt, but let us keep pulling this thread. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs directly from Dr. Inman's 1873, Volume 2 book, Ancient Faiths Embodied in Ancient Names, with very little adjustment only to make it more current with our forms of speech. Quote, Let us now consider what this expedition of Sesostris involves. He could certainly not have marched without an army, and we find that, at a period variously estimated between the limits of 1491 BC and 1648 BC, the whole of the Egyptian army was destroyed in the Red Sea, according to Exodus 14.6, etc. Now as it is stated in Exodus 12.29 and 30, that prior to this destruction of the armed host, there had been a slaughter of every firstborn son, and all the firstborn of cattle. It is clear that Sesostris could not have got an army powerful enough for invading Syria immediately after the supposed exodus of Israelis from Egypt. If then we place the date of exodus at any earlier period than 1491 B.C., so as to allow time for Sesostris to collect an army in 1489 B.C., we arrive at the certainty that this king must have overrun Palestine and conquered the Jews after their settlement in Canaan. This conquest, too, must have occurred according to the chronology during the period covered in the book of Judges. I will note here the period of Judges is about 350 years and add 50 years for Eli and Samuel, this giving us about four generations. That would put a generation around 100 years long, putting the average life expectancy nearing 300 years if we are to use current statistics as three times the length of a generation. Regardless of how one wants to play the numbers game, the numbers just don't jive. Continuing, that the expedition of Sisostris did take place during the time of the judges, we have the evidence of the book of Joshua, such as it is. For therein all the cities of Canaan are described as standing in their strength and being full of men, which could not have been the case after the destructive march of the Egyptian conqueror. The expedition did not happen after the time of Samuel. If then we are to credit the account of Herodotus and the interpretation of certain hieroglyphics, we must conclude that one, The assumed account of the Jewish historians suppressed a very important invasion and conquest of that nation, or two, that the Hebrews as a nation had no existence at the time of Sesostris. It is inconceivable that there would be no account of a Jewish nation among neighboring lands at that time. I will further add that it is beyond impossible that the famed historians and academics of ancient Greece in the timelines assigned by the Jews for their history, never mention anything about a nation of Jews. As prolific the greatest storytellers of all time that the Greeks were, never to mention this supposed nation goes against all reason and sanity if there ever was a nation. There is no original text, tablets, or any other form of correspondence from the Hebrew on any accounts for this timeline they present as history. And no corroboration in actual manuscripts, engravings, statues, or hieroglyphs from neighboring civilizations, including Egypt, from which we have an abundance of. And as a matter of truth, there are none for the entirety of their supposed history. It becomes exceedingly ridiculous and beyond parody when one looks at what has been accepted as evidence concerning a great Jewish nation. This claimed proof here coming from the Exodus fable, is solely reliant on a second-hand account of a few quotations from one man, a first century AD so-called Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, who says he got it from another man named Manetho. I would like to get to this nonsense of Josephus in this series, but it might not be necessary, as everything I have put up and will put up cuts to the root where Josephus' supposed accounts become immaterial. With the foundation that there was not and could not have been a great Jewish nation known in the timelines professed and that corroborated by the total lack of evidence or testimony by established contemporary nations of that time, I will now talk about the generational lineage and population numbers used in this false history to show the absolute absurdity that has been taken for fact. Here, I will use estimates based on Dr. Inman's study, which are very generous for the population of the land known as Palestine. The entire habitable area of Palestine during the assumed time of the supposed King David's census coming from the Old Testament fable could scarcely reach 2 million people, these people being solely agricultural. From this, the people of Tyre, Sidon, and the Philistines will be deducted. This leaving a maximum population of Jews at 500,000 for the areas called Israel and Judah. And as I said, this is very generous. Note, it is absolutely silly to determine supposed populations based on numbers from the fables of a Bible. These are not acceptable sources of evidence whatsoever. We might as well say 3 million people can survive in a desolate desert based solely on the size of the landmass, disregarding the absolute basic tenets required to sustain life, such as water, arable soil for food production, and material needed for shelter, leaving out the fact that abundance of all of these, along with the ability to create alloys and clothing, is an absolute necessity in order to grow a population, not just survive. So, with this 500,000 number, it is necessary to deduct half right away, to account for women. At this time, I won't bother with the elderly men, children, or the mentally incapacitated, among other realities that would affect the pool of able-bodied soldiers to pull from, as it is already clear, with these facts alone, that the supposed King David's census is an epic farce. So what was the census for able-bodied soldiers decreed by order of King David from Second Samuel 24.9? And Joab gave in the register to the king, it proved that there were 800,000 warriors that bore arms in Israel, and 500,000 in Judah, that making 1,300,000 able-bodied soldiers. But there is some competition for that number in 1 Chronicles 21.5. He handed in to David the number of those he had registered. The full muster roll was one million one hundred thousand that bore arms in Israel, with four hundred and seventy thousand in Judah, that making one million four hundred seventy thousand. This would require, at the most mathematical, ridiculously generous estimation, to muster an army of one million four hundred seventy thousand able bodied soldiers who bore arms a population pool of six million. But furthermore, it is said in 1 Chronicles 27.1-15 that this King David's current standing army was 288,000 strong, making the total by adding to the census the standing army of King David, 1,758,000 soldiers at his disposal. Let me put this into perspective. The United States' entire armed forces, that's Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, you can laugh at that one, and Coast Guard, out of a population of 330 million, that is a population 165 times as big as the maximum population estimated of habitable Palestine at that time, is 1,345,000. Now, maybe 250,000 of those are actual soldiers who are battle-ready in the Army and Marines, This is all with the immense resources at the disposal of the United States in the year 2021. Adding to this impossible history of a great Jewish nation, the entire British Armed Forces today is around 200,000 personnel, without pulling out how many are battle-ready soldiers. And furthermore, so as to not leave any stone unturned, Where did this King David house his standing army of 288,000 men in a city, that being Jerusalem, that at the most, per its size, and making a generous assumption that it can be as densely populated as a county of today, may be being able to sustain a population of 30,000 people at that time. At this point, I want to make it clear, there is no evidence whatsoever to show the existence of a great Jewish nation prior to King David, and with that, and regardless of it, an abundance of evidence that none could have ever existed. With all of the trade of the Phoenicians and the ancient Greeks anchoring in port on the Mediterranean shores during these supposed times of a great Jewish nation, we have nothing relayed by these vast civilizations, seafarers, and merchants discussing such a nation with great kings, or a King Solomon, who all other kings sought to align with and seek guidance from, a king of astronomical, personal wealth, a king who had an alliance with the king of Tyre, who the Greeks most assuredly knew. Nothing is said by them, no evidence brought forth. The voyaging Greeks, who were known to have traveled as far as Assyria during this time, known for their acquisition of knowledge from other cultures, their abundant stories, poems, and plays, the de facto literary producers throughout time, say nothing of the supposed Jewish nation during the chronologies professed as history by academia. Let me state here, there being no great Jewish nation in history was the consensus among the vast majority of academics, geologists, archaeologists, bishops, cardinals, and the like, the most learned of the Western world, including those directly commissioned by royal families, presidents, and governments who investigated this false history with great detail, working with their colleagues residing in these lands in question, the ones who have the most direct knowledge and were closest to the source information. All of this prior to World War I, and especially World War II. These works published throughout the 1700s and 1800s, but limited to only these choice small groups, until the advent of digital scans being available to the public only 11 years ago today. So, now... What of the claims of lineage from the supposed man called Abraham? Without drawing out the entire fantastical story of the progeny who came from the character called Abraham, that was written with such great detail from a time thousands of years ago, where we can hardly trace our own families back three generations today, let alone with the detail professed in the Abrahamic Bibles, I will start with the number who entered Egypt. From Exodus 1.5, it says 70 souls from Jacob's stock entered Egypt. Counting generational with what is testified in the Jewish chronology of the stock of Jacob up to the time of Exodus, that would count only two generations. This is remarkable in the fact that Genesis 15.13 and Acts 7.6, it says 400 years elapsed, which are wholly unaccounted for through these books or evidence in history, from the time of entering Egypt to the time of Exodus. Or we can go by Exodus 1240, making it 430 years. Whatever. It seems we can just pick whichever one we want. Using the math per the Jewish Testament, this would calculate a generation to be around 200 years long. The longevity of the Jewish person at that time is quite magical and superhuman, along with their ability to reproduce, it seems as we find that from these 70 souls, presuming 35 to be men, becomes a nation of about 3 million, and are told 600,000 were men, which, according to Jewish math again, would mean 100 children for each male for two generations. This being the same ratio for a third generation, I suppose had to happen in some form during their 40 years in the desolate desert wilderness. When emerging from the wilderness, it is said they wiped out the whole of the Midianites, except keeping the virgins, of course, then slaying or capturing at the smallest calculation 128,000 Canaanites, adding to their numbers. The Canaanites said to have had vast towns protected by fabulous walls of great height. Nevertheless, the Jews coming out of the desert, just conquering the Midianites, who had not enough food for cattle, barely enough food for themselves, no means of creating weapons, let alone the material to do so, sacked Canaan. Some more stories of victory, then enslavement, then victory again, then rest, etc. goes on for hundreds of years, including the Midianites, who but just near two centuries ago were slain by the Jews leaving just one man alive. Miraculously, come back with an army as numerous as grasshoppers, and enslave the Jews for seven years. But again, the Jews rise up and kill about 135,000 Midianite men securing their freedom. Understand this here. For the Midianites, to have lost 135,000 men would require a population of 800,000 strong, that being one fighting man to one woman, three children, and one non-fighting age man an old man so what was the length of time the testimony in the bible gives for this population increase of the midianites it does not say but requires us to put in the work to find it which brings us to look at the generations between judah and david and per ruth 4:18 to 22 is only 9 but since 4 are subtracted for egypt and 2 for samuel's period And without having your eyes roll into the back of your head with more numbers, this allows for three generations, maybe four, taking the great people of the Midianites from one man to 800,000 between Judah and David. If you want to look at this in more detail, you can check out Dr. Inman's Volume 2 of Ancient Faiths Embodied in Ancient Names, chapters 2 and 3, where you will find the ratios and rates of increase proposed by the Jewish math defy calculation throughout their chronology of events. By this point in listening, it is possible you have reverted back to a notion that a Jewish exodus from Egypt occurred. And with that, all of their fantastic exploits post-exodus, which happens with the mind as it listens to stories, it tends to ingrain itself within the story and get lost in the fantasy. This is natural, and why good stories are great and entertaining. Not these, though, as these are from below average intellect, compared with that of the Greeks, Romans, Indians, Persians, and Egyptians who developed such an acute knowledge for writing within their cultures, where these Jewish fables are nothing but feeble attempts to mimic the greats. To sum this up, the only evidence of Egypt casting a people out, we find, is that of the Hyksos and that of the lepers where both of these claims, as being proof of a Jewish nation in Egypt, were put to rest earlier. There are no monuments, sculptures, written text, nor hieroglyphs throughout the history of Egypt showing a great Jewish people. And at every Jewish avenue we follow in attempting to prove their evidence, we find not a morsel of proof for the testimonies given in any of the Abrahamic books of superstition, but only fable fable that was whole cloth copied from more ancient, traceable, and established civilizations. And more to the point, these statements are made by an assumed priest named Manetho from the 3rd century BC, that being 1,000 years after what his supposed writings in works we have no originals of, or corroborating evidence, or any other witnesses. Point in fact here, if there were a great Hebrew nation in Egypt, supposed to be numbering in the several millions it would be in their hieroglyphs and monuments at a minimum, and very apparent, where there is not a trace. Let's assume for a moment, these academics who put forth the nonsense of the Hebrew alphabet deriving from Egyptian, saying Egyptian having derivatives of Canaanite, then, with sleights of hand, equating Canaanite with a new word they pulled out of a hat called Proto-Hebraic. My assumption is to make people think Hebrew was developed by Hebrews, and not just another Arabic dialect, a mishmash derived from their numerous captivities, mainly rooting from the ancient Phoenician, Babylonian, and Chaldean, let's assume these academics are on the up and up and correct. Show me where the Egyptian tongue shows up in Jewish names. Show me where the Egyptian root systems are in Hebrew. They aren't there. There is no influence of anything Egyptian within the culture of the Jews outside of circumcision which, as we know, was second- or third-hand knowledge to them. All other influences during their various captivities, that being on the other side of the Red Sea, show up in abundance throughout the Jewish culture, their language, their practices, and all, but nothing of influence on their culture showing up from their supposed hundreds of years in Egypt, going from Joseph being a great ruler there and saving all the Egyptians, to being slaves for 400 years, and everything else in between. I'll expand this real quick, too. The names in the Bible, 95% of them, are not of Jewish origin, and not even the Hebrew academics can deny that. The Jewish names throughout history mainly derive from what is called Eloistic or Jehovistic, with Eloistic being the dominant, and I will try to get to these concepts before the end of the series. These are not just mere facts, but undeniable truth built on an immovable foundation positively traceable by anyone today, where that wasn't the case until about 10 years ago. In other words, the entire time leading up to, and not until, about 65 years after World War II, the public at large did not have access to this information. I expect this episode to be in the middle of five in series, In closing, I will say that some of the information in this series will lay dormant in the mind until it finds a circumstance to be revealed. That just meaning that what might not be apparent to you now with time will show up intermittently as the pieces start getting reference points to be put into place. This can be accelerated by going back periodically and reviewing the episodes throughout this series. As many who might be listening to these, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, as this material is very dense and cannot be fully realized with a single listen. Why would I go through the trouble of showing these absurd Jewish numbers, exploits, and timelines when it was clear by episode 2 that these Bibles in their entirety are works of fiction? Well, pick up a history book and then look at a map today. Take all that has been shown in these three episodes and see the false history's outcome play out in the world we live in today. With that, I will close this episode with a quote from Professor Max Muller, a mid-1800s German-born philologist and a founder of the Western academic disciplines of Indian Studies and Religious Studies. Quote, All truth is safe, and nothing else is safe. And he who keeps back the truth, or withholds it from men, from motives of expediency, is either a coward, or a criminal, or both. End quote. Music by White Bat Audio. Check him out at whitebataudio.com.